0: Again, Good morning and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation and chapter 12. The book of Revelation and chapter 12. As we are thinking about Advent together, both the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, I want to call your attention this morning to an apocalyptic Christmas story, by apocalyptic, not only am I referring to the fact that this Christmas story is found in the book of the apocalypse, or commonly known as the book of Revelation, but when I use the word apocalyptic, I'm referring to that genre of scripture, that that, that highly stylized form of literature that is rich in symbolism. It's a literature of dreams, and in the case of Revelation chapter 12, a literature rooted in visions from God. And so I trust that as you've made your way to Revelation chapter 12, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing, Christ-exalting word of the true and living God. Revelation chapter 12. Please hear God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great red dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Again, I am calling this this morning an apocalyptic Christmas story, not only because it's found in the book of the apocalypse, but because it brings us face to face with this genre of scripture that is dramatic. It is full of rich. Symbolism, pictures that are meant to evoke an immediate response from us, a response of awe and, and, and wonder. These great pictures of dragons and you read elsewhere of, of, of you know the stars falling and the other portions of the Word of God speak in apocalyptic terms when the rivers are clapping and the fields are singing for joy because Yahweh is coming. It's, it's all pictures that are meant to uh, convey. Reality to us, the reality of God's reign, the supremacy of his, his, his greatness, all of that. And so this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It must have made his heart stop. And it had to have taken his breath away. I can even imagine his blood starting to run cold at the sight of it. I'm referring, of course, to the servant of Elisha in the story that comes to us out of 2 Kings chapter 6. The king of Syria wanted Elisha, the prophet, dead. And when he found out that Elisha was in the town of Dothan, he sent horses and chariots and a great army by night, and they surrounded the little town. Well, early in the morning, Elisha's servant woke up went outside and saw the Syrian army surrounding the city. And he knew that this army was here for them. I can just imagine the hair on the back of this young man's neck standing straight up. I mean, imagine walking out and realizing this army surrounding the city is here for you. And out of fear, he says to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said to him, Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I can imagine the servant thinking, "Um, what are you talking about? It's just you and I against an entire army. And yet we are more than them. So Elisha prays to God a very simple prayer. Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And we are told that the Lord opened the eyes of this young man, and what he saw was truly remarkable. He looked out and beyond the Syrian army, and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. Chariots of fire. You see, what happened is that God pulled back the curtain, as it were, And allowed this young man to see the army of angels that God had sent to protect them. And the whole situation was put into heaven's perspective. God gave him a glimpse of the unseen spiritual realm in order to encourage him and calm his fears. Sometimes I think we as Christians, we long for similar experiences, do we not? We're going through things and we say, if only I could just see what's really happening. We, we want the comfort of being able to see God's hand at work in the unseen realm. We want the encouragement of being able to see angels surrounding us to protect us when it seems like all hell is after us. But the fact of the matter is that we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk and live by what God has said and not by what we can see. And when it comes to what God has said in his word, we know that beyond the physical struggles and material battles that we witness and even experience in this world, there lies another world. There lies another realm, another reality, a reality that shapes and determines and defines the reality that we see and know. And whenever we long... For God, whenever we have that itch to have God pull back the curtain so that we can really see what's going on in the unseen realm, just like God did for Elisha's servant, we need not ask God to pull back the curtain. We need to open the Bible. We need to open God's word. And when we open up the Bible, we learn very quickly that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We learn very quickly that We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We learn that we have an adversary, the devil, who, like Peter says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When we want God to pull back the curtain, he does so as it were, in his word for us to see. We learn that as the people of God, we belong to God. And we learn that the rest of the world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Have you ever allowed that reality to, to, to hit you? We are of God and the whole world, the whole unbelieving world, lies within the control the sway, the influence, the power of the wicked one. We learn that there are those who by grace have been made alive with Christ and then there is the rest of mankind following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now presently at work in all who disobey God by nature as sons and daughters of wrath. We learn that the source of all physical evil and violence and wickedness in the world is a fallen, intelligent, powerful, cunning, deceitful, murderous, God-hating, goodness-despising angel who has legions of other angels on his side. That's what we learn when we open the Bible. And his chief aim is to oppose God, to oppose his kingdom, his will, his people, and his purposes. And yet we also learn that His fate is sealed. His doom is sure. And his time is short. Usually when we think about Advent, our minds are drawn to the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus in Matthew and Luke, and rightly so. But obviously these passages are not the only ones that speak about his birth and his coming into this world. What we have in Revelation chapter 12 is also a story about the birth of Christ, and it is rich with symbolism and drama. It's the birth of Christ from the perspective of heaven. Matthew and Luke do an excellent job telling the story of our Savior's birth from the vantage point of earth. But here in Revelation 12, John wants us to understand the coming of Christ into this world from the vantage point of heaven. And the beautiful thing about this story and this perspective of our Savior's birth into this world is that it also includes what he went on to accomplish for the glory of his Father and the salvation of his people. And this is really what Christmas is about, isn't it? It's not merely about the birth of a child into this world. Christmas is ultimately about the birth of a child into this world who would go to the cross who would go and make propitiation for the sins of his people. The birth of a child who would bear the weight of his people's sin and all of its collective guilt and then die under the wrath of God in our place. That's what Christmas is ultimately about. We cannot celebrate Christ merely in the manger. That manger should lead us to Gethsemane and then to Calvary and then to the right hand of God where he is now seated enthroned for us. This Christmas story in Revelation chapter 12 doesn't just focus on the birth of the promised serpent slayer. It goes on to describe our Savior's decisive victory and glorious triumph over the ancient serpent. Just to give you some context before we begin, when we turn to Revelation chapter 12, we turn to the fourth of seven cycles of visions that John captures in the book of Revelation. This fourth cycle begins in chapter 12 and it runs all the way through the end of chapter 14. This particular section falls between the seven trumpets, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, and then the seven bowls, chapters 15 and 16. And like these other sections, Chapters 12 through 14 begin with the first coming of Christ and culminate with his second coming and the judgment that follows. These cycles or these parallel sections in the book of Revelation give us a different perspective on the period of time between the first and second coming of Christ and the judgment that follows. You'll notice that chapter 12 begins by describing the birth and ascension of Christ, verse 5. And then chapter 14 ends by describing the final judgment, verses 14 through 20. John tells us at the end of this section that one, like a son of man, appears in the cloud with a sickle in his hand because the time of harvest and wrath has come, which is language in the book of Revelation for the final judgment. Chapter 12 also marks the beginning of the second half of the book of Revelation. Note that down. It marks the, the beginning of the second half of the book of Revelation. Chapter 11 makes, or it marks the halfway point, really, in the book, not only numerically, but also in terms of its overall message. The message of chapter 12, and I, I, this is not an understatement, the message of chapter 12 is really the heart of the book of Revelation's overall message. And it's this. Christ has come to conquer the ancient serpent and rescue his bride. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Jesus slays the dragon and rescues his bride. What's interesting is that chapters 1 through 11 describe the conflict between the church and the world from the perspective of earth. Whereas chapters 12 through 22 describe this same conflict, but with an emphasis on what's really happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. Or, in other words, the conflict between the church and the world from the perspective of heaven. And so as we make our way through this chapter this morning, I want to do so in three progressions of thought that go with the flow of this chapter. And here they are. The sun caught up to the throne, verses 1 to 6. The serpent cast down to the earth, verses 7 through 12. And the woman carried out to the wilderness, verses 13 to 17. And so what we have in this chapter is the sun caught up to the throne, the serpent cast down to the earth, and the woman carried out to the wilderness. Let me just begin by saying and this is important, that this chapter is not intended to confuse you. It's not intended to confuse you. So if you're hesitant right now and you're, your feet are nervous of getting into this water, it's not God's intent to confuse you. Chapter 12 of Revelation is clear. It's straightforward, and it's meant to be hugely encouraging to the church in every age You are not meant to get caught up in the number of the heads on the dragon or the number of crowns that he's wearing. You are not meant to read into who or what the eagle is and whether or not the eagle symbolizes the United States of America. (laughs) Friends, don't even go there. That's not God's intent here. We are meant to read this chapter with an open Bible, not with an open newspaper looking at world events. The message of Revelation 12 meant something precious and significant to first century churches in Asia Minor who did not have newspapers and did not have Fox or CNN. We're, they weren't told that this message was for another time, you know, a time that they didn't even need to worry about 2,000 years from then where, 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 where the folks in that day will have Fox News and CNN on at all times in order to grasp the message of revelation. No, no, Its relevance was meant to encourage the churches in Asia Minor in their day, just as its message is meant to encourage the church of Jesus Christ until he comes again. Before we dive into the text, I believe it would be helpful to just introduce you to the three main characters in the chapter and who they represent. The three main characters are, very simply, the woman, the dragon, or the serpent, and the male child. Very simple, right? Let's consider the woman really quick. We're told in chapter 12, verse 1, that she's clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet. And her head, on her head, is a crown of 12 stars. And she's pregnant. Some Roman Catholics, and you see this especially in medieval art, believe that this is describing the Virgin Mary. And so you'll see pictures of of, of the Virgin Mary even in the Southwest here of of, of this woman with, with, with a crown of 12 stars and the sun and the moon underneath her. This is not the Virgin Mary. In fact, this isn't even a specific woman in history. We know that because we're told that she appears as a great sign, which tells us that she's a symbolic figure. The sun and the moon and the stars around her should remind us, first and foremost, of Joseph's dream back in Genesis chapter 37. We read this. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? And listen, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So Jacob understood very clearly that in Joseph's dream, he was the sun, Joseph's mother was the moon, and the 11 stars were his other 11 sons. And so when you put all the sons together, you have the 12 sons of Israel. And so when we see this sign or symbol, we are meant to think of Israel and the 12 tribes or the people of God during the Old Testament era. The woman symbolizes the covenant community of God's people, the remnant of believing Jews leading up to the birth of the Messiah. She's clothed with the sun, which describes her beauty. She has the moon under her feet, which points to her authority in this world. And she's she's been entrusted with God's authoritative word. And finally, she's crowned with the stars, which is a picture of her royalty as the bride and queen of Yahweh, as it were. But you'll notice the woman is still in the picture even after the birth of the male child who ascends to God's throne. Which tells us, furthermore, that the woman is not just the remnant of believing Jews leading up to the New Testament, but she symbolizes the people of God in every age. So in the big picture of the book of Revelation, the woman is a picture of the church. In the book of Revelation, the number 12 isn't just symbolic for the 12 tribes of Israel, which is a picture of the people of God under the Old Covenant, But the number 12 also represents the 12 apostles who are a picture of the New Testament church. And so the woman represents the elect people of God in all ages. She is the culmination of Yahweh's covenant promise to Abraham and his offspring that one of his descendants would come and bring universal blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so I believe... Strong evidence to conclude that the woman in this story is the elect people of God, the church. Next, the dragon. And this one's very obvious, isn't it? The dragon is Satan. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So John tells us very clearly that the serpent is the devil, This dragon, contrary to some of the weird stuff that's out there on the internet today, isn't some future apocalyptic monster that's going to come in the last days. He's the ancient serpent of Genesis chapter 3, the devil. He hates God, he hates God's people, and he hates God's purposes. The dragon is Satan. And finally, the third main character in the chapter is the male child. Look at verse 5. A woman gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Three things about this male child make it crystal clear that he is Jesus, the Son of God. Number one, he is born of the woman, we read. Now, whose birth in all the Bible is celebrated the most? the Lord Jesus. He is the promised seed of the woman, as we saw last week in Genesis 3.15. He is the one born of a virgin, as Isaiah prophesied. He is the son of whom it is said, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is Jesus Christ. The second clue we have about him is that we are told that he is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 2, which is applied again and again in the New Testament to Jesus Christ. He is the royal son of David and the Messiah who fulfills Psalm 2. And finally, the third clue we are told in verse 5 is that this male child was caught up to God and to his throne. And when we look at our Bibles and we ask, who was caught up to God and to his throne? Other people were caught up to God. But to be seated on God's throne? One person, the Son of God, God the Son. A clear reference to both his ascension and his session or his being seated at the right hand of God. And so as we dive in, we know without a shadow of a doubt who these three main characters are and who they represent. The woman represents the church, the dragon represents the devil, and the male child is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to the first of three progressions of thought in Revelation 12, the sun caught up to the throne. We begin in verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, again signifying her beauty, her Radiance, as Psalm 34 says, all who look to Yahweh are radiant. This woman is clothed with the sun. She is shining like the sun. It also says that she has the moon underneath her feet, which signifies her authority. The moon, often in the Bible, pictures the night. It's a symbol of the night, the darkness. And we see that the people of God, ever since God has called her out, has given her authority to conquer the darkness. And then on her head are a crown of 12 stars. She's the queen, as it were. She's Yahweh's bride. Verse 2 says she was pregnant. And let me tell you, the people of God have been pregnant ever since when? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We saw that last week. Ever since God impregnated the people of God with the promise of a coming serpent crusher, People of God throughout all of redemptive history have been pregnant with the expectation of a coming male child who would conquer the serpent. This has been the Old Testament longing all along. In fact, if we were to summarize the Old Testament in these terms, we could say the people of God are pregnant with the Messiah. The people of God are expecting this coming serpent slayer and he will come. And she's crying out in birth pains and in the agony of birth. So again, these pictures aren't literal pictures, right? But but they, they but they portray something very real, something very real. And what is it? The people of God are yearning, longing, singing as it were, "O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. Come and free us from the tyranny of the devil." Come, come, come. She's crying out in labor pains. So this brings us up to the birth of Christ. This is an apocalyptic Christmas story. This is the hope of the ages. Dennis Johnson, in his excellent commentary on Revelation, put it like this. From the expulsion from Eden, God's people have been an expectant mother, awaiting the birth of the seed who would champion their cause against Satan, the liar, the accuser, and the murderer. Ever since Genesis 3:15, God's people have been a pregnant, expectant mother. Verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Again, another richly, another rich symbol appeared in heaven. Behold, consider a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Here I was just soaking in the beauty of this passage this week and the message that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I had a good, good brother uh, at work just say, but why is it seven heads and ten horns? (laughs) Again, we're not meant to get caught up in the details of these numbers that are highly symbolic, right? Seven is the number of completeness in the book of Revelation, the number of perfection And so we have these five symbols that give us insight into this great enemy of the church, Satan. Number one, symbol number one, he is great. Symbolizes his his power, his influence, his strength. Sometimes within the church, we belittle the devil and we mock the devil. And I'm sure you've seen... YouTube clips or church videos of church services and you have these prosperity preachers just rebuking Satan all over the place and Satan do this and Satan do that. It just shows complete ignorance when it comes to the devil's actual power and his influence. He is our enemy. He is powerful. We're gonna see how powerful just in a second. The second clue we have about him is that he is, or the second description, he is red. Red in the book of Revelation symbolizes bloodshed. Violence. We have the picture of the harlot later on who rides this beast who's, who's clothed with crimson. She's a persecutor of the church. She brings violence against God's people. Thirdly, he is a dragon, which in the Bible is a devouring beast. Merciless, cruel, violent, hostile. Fourthly, he has seven heads, which means His craftiness, his wisdom is complete. It's perfect with regards to evil. He is great in power, signified by these 10 horns. These horns, obviously, in apocalyptic literature on these animals you see even from the book of Daniel. I'd encourage you to go and read Daniel 7 through like 9. And you have these visions of these these coming beasts, these world rulers who have these horns, uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and Alexander the Great, who, who would come and, 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 and conquer by their power. And finally, we read that he has authority to influence others, his seven crowns. He's a royal figure of some sort. And I'm, I would argue that he's crowned, he was initially crowned by Adam and Eve who lost the crown in the Garden of Eden. God had crowned them with glory. And honor. And when they turned their back on God and joined the devil in the, his rebellion against God, they in effect took the crown from their heads and placed it on their new master. He is crowned with seven crowns. And by the way, he is still crowned to this day by people who are following him. Now, no one is openly going to ever admit that they are following Satan. But we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that if you're against God, you are following the prince of the power of the air. Every time you spit in God's face, you bow down and crown your master, the devil. Every time you crown him. And so we have these, these, these symbols, rich symbols of the devil. And I just want to say again, do not ever, ever mock or belittle or make light of the devil's power. He's not equal to God, but he's great in power. Notice this power on display in verse four. Look down at your Bible. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. In the book of Revelation, the the stars are the messengers, the angels of the church, and so they can also refer to the people. But I believe and Many, many scholars throughout the history of the church believe that this is a reference to Satan's initial rebellion in heaven when he brought down with him a third of the heavenly host with him. Now, there are suggestions in Daniel chapter 8, I believe it's verse 10, to signify that the stars represent the persecuted people of God. And that's certainly a possibility. As we're going to see, it fits within the context. However, I believe that these stars here are his Fellow angels who rebelled against God sometime after they were created and before Genesis 3 when sin entered the world. Let me just read you these quick passages from Isaiah and then Ezekiel that kind of describe, I think, and many people think, describe the fall of Satan. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12 How you are fallen from heaven, O day star! Interesting that he's called a star here because he brings down these other stars. O son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What's, what's What did he tell Eve? You can be like God. We have insight into his mentality. I will be like the Most High. And we're told, but you are brought down to shield to the far reaches of the pit. And he brings a third of the angels down with him. Another passage, Ezekiel 28, beginning verse 11. This is a lamentation against the king of Tyre, but it's interesting because the way the prophet describes him through the Holy Spirit, kind of gives us insight that he's a picture of Satan. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. We know that Satan was an angel, created beautiful, powerful, signet of perfection it says in verse 13 something that couldn't be said of the king of Tyre you were in Eden the garden of God every precious stone was your covering sardius topaz and diamond beryl onyx and jasper sapphire emerald and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created they were prepared you were an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you will you were Filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned, and I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty, your corrupted wisdom, for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Speaks of the downfall of Satan from heaven. And he brings a third of the stars with him. Now we're told earlier in the book of Revelation that John sees around the throne thousands times ten thousands angels around God's throne. So if you imagine how many angels are left, thousands, hundreds of thousands, there are still many, many fallen angels on Satan's side, a third of the angels with him, filling the earth with with violence. Well, notice verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman. The picture is that of of, of eager anticipation who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That's what dragons do. This picture is meant to bring us to the edge of our seats. Here's this helpless, vulnerable, weak woman in labor and she's about to deliver a helpless infant. And you know who's there ready to, to, to devour this child is this Great red dragon, 10 heads. Sorry, seven heads, seven crowns, 10 horns. I mean, the picture is just one of awe and wonder and how is this woman going to make it? How is this child going to make it? Well, notice verse five. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Again, we're not talking about literal time and space history because we know that before Jesus was caught up to the throne, there were about 30 years, 33 years, give or take. But the picture that's meant to leave an impression on our minds here in in the, the life of Christ from the vantage point of heaven is that this helpless, vulnerable baby is born into the world and he's beyond the reach of Satan. He's beyond the reach of the dragon, He's caught up, raptured as it were, to God. It's a, it's a, it's a violent snatching. Catching, got, he gets caught up to God and to his throne. And again, this is the, the, the Messiah from Psalm 2. He's caught up to God and to his throne. It was said in Psalm 2, God said, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is referring to Christ. But he's caught up to God and to his throne. It's interesting because sometimes the biblical writers sum up the entire life and ministry of Christ in terms of his death, right? Uh, I think of Galatians chapter two, verse 20, where Paul says, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He sums up his entire life in the fact that he gave his life For Paul. Here, his entire life and ministry is summed up in his ascension, his victory, his triumph, his conquering of the devil. He is caught up to God and to his throne. God raises him up. God exalts him to the throne. And he sits. And so he focuses on the ascension of Christ and the session of Christ. Session referring to People sitting down, someone sitting down. This encapsulates the life, suffering, and exaltation of Christ. Mark sixteen nineteen. then the Lord Jesus, after his resurrection, after he had spoken to his disciples, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Luke 22, when Jesus is on trial, When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And now listen to the words of Jesus. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power and after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the ascension, exaltation of Christ and notice the effect of this. Verse 6. Picture is Jesus is it, he escapes the clutches of the devil. He's caught up to God, seated at the right hand of power and majesty. And notice verse six, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years or 42 months or a time, times, and a half a time. In the book of Revelation, these are all the same period of time. So after the ascension of Christ, the church is seen, again, in this dramatic picture, as now fleeing into the wilderness. Her savior is caught up her advocate, her high priest, ascends to the right hand of God and now the church is left on earth and he and the church flees into the wilderness. In the Bible, again, in apocalyptic, dramatic literature, the wilderness is a picture of what? Well, it takes us back to post-Exodus where the wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place of barrenness. It's a place where it's dry, but nonetheless, the wilderness is a place where God... Protects, provides for, and nourishes his people. It's a barren land, but God is there with her. In fact, he's prepared a place for her. It's a place of testing and provision. This is where the church is today, in the wilderness. Now, I believe that this symbolizes the entire time period between the first and second coming of Christ, the church in the wilderness. It is dry, it is barren, but the church, by virtue of her union with Christ the vine, is a fruitful vine attached to Christ. Everything around her is dry and dead, and yet she is nourished and provided for by her Christ, by her God. Notice that there's a place prepared by God for her in the wilderness. You see, the devil was prepared to devour the male child And yet God brings her to a place where he's prepared to nourish her. The word nourish here in the Greek really just means to feed her, to take care of her, to cause her to continue to live and survive and thrive. It's a beautiful picture of the church today. God has prepared a place for his people in the wilderness, and that brings us back to Psalm 23, where... David confesses, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. And as my shepherd, he has prepared for me a table, even where? In the presence of my enemies. And that's true of the church today. And she is to be fed for 1,260 days, or three and a half years, or 42 months, or again, a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Again, this is symbolic language, friends. Why is it that we can... Look to the seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns and be like, well, yeah, that's symbolic. But when it comes to the durations of the book of Revelation, we're like, no, these are literal. (laughs) Friends, we, we don't do that. All of the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic, but not the durations? No. It's interesting because when we think about the ten horns, which have already been alluded to, We go back to this, these writings in Daniel. And what's interesting is that this is the exact length of time that Antiochus Epiphanes tyrannized Jerusalem. Three and a half years, or 1,260 days, or 42 months. It was a dreadful time for the Jews. They would have remembered. Three and a half years sparked a memory. But it also sparked another terrible memory in the history of Israel. One writer says the number 42 months is not precisely literal, but rather is figurative for the extended eschatological period of tribulation repeatedly prophesied by Daniel. And the use of 42 here, or 1,260 days, recalls the same time of Elijah's ministry of judgment. And here's what I want to focus on just briefly. This is interesting because when you read, for example, Luke 4.25, Jesus said, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine was over the land. You see, the three and a half years was, sem- was, 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 was memorable to the Jews as one of the darkest periods in their history when you had Ahaz and Jezebel, who's already been alluded to in the book of Revelation as this demonic entity. It was a time of great persecution of the people of God. You remember Elijah fled because it was so bad. It was dark. Ahaz had done more wickedness than all the kings before him. It was a dark period. And by the way, Elijah's already been alluded to in the previous chapter, Revelation chapter 11. So it's not far-fetched to say, hey, this is symbolic of a really, really bad, dark time in the people, history of the people of God. Furthermore, three and a half years is mentioned in James chapter five, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a like nature, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, or 1,200, 1,260 days, it did not rain on the earth. And again, we read, I'm sorry, I was talking about Ahaz. I'm talking about Ahab and Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 16, we read that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. All who were before him. And so this, this, is, this is symbolic of a very dark time, a period of intense tribulation, intense persecution, intense darkness. Joel Beeky writes, These numerical references, which equate to 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years, correspond to the period of time during which the prophet Elijah called down a famine upon Israel and hid from the anger of wicked Ahab and Jezebel in the wilderness. During this time, the prophet was miraculously fed by ravens in the wilderness. Again, symbolic language because as Elijah fled to the wilderness for those three and a half years and God sustained him by the ravens, Who else is in the wilderness now? And being fed by God. The church. Highly symbolic language, friends. We're not to take this literal. And she is being nourished and protected. And I believe that this describes the present age of the church. Since the ascension of Christ, the church has been led by God out into this dark, barren, idolatrous world. And yet, nevertheless, God is providing for his bride and protecting his bride, even as he provided for Elijah for those three and a half years under the persecution of Ahab and Jezebel. This is glorious good news. Well, notice as we move on in the text, it's not just the son caught up to the throne, but we come to our second point, the serpent cast down to the earth, verses seven through 12. Now, war arose in heaven. Now, what you're gonna read here flows from everything we just read about. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, verse eight, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So as a result of the sun's ascension to heaven, the angels break out in battle in heaven. Now, what's the picture of here? Have you ever seen those courtroom videos where the sentence is passed not in favor of the criminal either and the criminal is sentenced to a horrible sentence, perhaps a death sentence and the criminal at that moment throws a fit of rage and he tries to rebel and escape and who goes after him? It's usually the bailiff or the the police in the courtroom I believe that's what's happening here. Jesus ascends, conquers the devil, removes him as it it were from his place of being able to accuse the people of God, as we're going to see before the throne of God. And because the sin of the people is paid for, and the devil has no more grounds for accusing them, he throws this fit of rage and fury, and he rebels, and the bailiffs get involved, the servants get involved, the the heavenly hopes, the heavenly police, as it were, get involved to drag this devil down to the earth because the sentence is already passed. The price is already paid. His doom is sealed. His fate is sure. His time is short. He no longer has a place. Now, we're told in the book of Job that Satan used to have some sort of access to heaven, the place of God where he, as we're gonna read later, accused the people of God. He came and he brought charges against Job He's always accused the people of God. But notice, as we go on in the text, he was defeated and there was no longer any place for the demons, these these angels in heaven, the devil and his angels. Verse nine, and the great dragon was thrown down. Notice that phrase keeps repeating throughout this chapter. Thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. It's, it's, It's meant to evoke encouragement in the people of God that this great enemy has been cast down, thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the battle that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 of the male child and the serpent and the male child getting his heel crushed while he crushed the head of the serpent, this is that battle. That's why we looked at that last week. That ancient serpent that's meant to bring us back to the Garden of Eden who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Not only did they fall with Satan in that initial rebellion, but as they throughout redemptive history have gone up to the throne, up to the throne to accuse God's people, Jesus comes, satisfies the wrath of God, wins propitiation, purchases their redemption, defeats the devil by his own death. Satan no longer has any grounds to say, God. Why should you justify Richard? How can you accept his prayers? Why can't he do that? Because Richard's sins have been paid for in full by the Lord Jesus. He has no grounds to accuse the people of God before the throne of God. And now notice verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now as a result of Christ's ascension and salvation, Session at the right hand of God. Now, the salvation, the deliverance, and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Can you imagine the picture? Up until this point, Satan had grounds for complaining that God justified Abraham and Sarah and Noah who got drunk off his own grapes and Joseph and Israel, deceivers. All the people of gone throughout the Old Testament. They're not shining figures. We know that. They're not these heroic people. I mean, they, they did some really cool things, but in the end, they were weak, pathetic, sinful, flesh-loving people like ourselves, and yet God justifies the ungodly, Romans chapter four, and he says that in the context of justifying Abraham, who is the father of us all. Satan had a place where he would accuse the people of God. How can you justify, how can you bring them in? How can you listen to their prayers? How can you do this? Jesus comes, bears their guilt and bears their sin and drains the wrath of God on their behalf. And completely silences the devil. Jesus' testament, his cry from the cross, it is finished. And then the subsequent exclamation point of his resurrection and ascension and session at the right hand of God completely silenced the accuser. Completely silence him, shut him up forever. And verse 11 And they conquered him, the saints, the brethren. The church, they have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb. Notice the source of their victory, three things. The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. In other words, their, their commitment to the gospel. For they loved not their lives even unto death. They were willing to give their lives away even unto death. Now this is interesting because we find that God is protecting the woman and yet there are people who are dying. There are saints who are dying. He's protecting his church in the wilderness, feeding his church in the wilderness, and yet there are saints who are dying. That's because the book of Revelation's emphasis on God's protection is not protection against death. It's not protection against persecution. It's protection against apostasy and falling away and your soul being thrown down with the devil and his angels. So often we think, oh, God, protect me today. It means, oh, don't let me get into a car crash today. Don't let me get cancer, Lord. And those are, those are legitimate things to pray. But what God is primarily concerned about is your protection against sin and falling out of his grip, and falling into the condemnation of the devil. That's what he comes, Jesus comes to save us from and protect us from. And verse 12 says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? The accuser of the brethren has been cast down. Propitiation won. Redemption secured, procured by the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, who takes away all the sins of all of his people. Rejoice, O heavens. Oh, but look at the rest of the verse. But woe to you, O earth and sea. Why? For the devil has come down to you in great fury great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. You see, Jesus at the cross and in his subsequent resurrection, ascension, session to the right hand of God laid the death blow to the serpent's head. And it's only a matter of time before the serpent is done. This is the serpent cast down to the earth. And now our final point we have seen the sun caught up to the throne, the serpent cast down to the earth, and thirdly, as we conclude here, we see the woman carried out to the wilderness. The woman carried out to the wilderness. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. He pursues the church who had given birth to the male child, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Again, this is meant to bring us back to the Exodus. And when they were celebrating God's deliverance from the Pharaoh and from his hosts, they confessed that God brought them out into the wilderness on wings like eagles. This is all coming from the Old Testament. But now the church in this greater exodus is carried out by God into the wilderness, given wings like eagle, like an eagle. The idea of being untouchable from the devil. She's high. She's soaring beyond his reach to the place where she is to be nourished. Again, we, t- we go back to that period of time. A time ton and times two years, and then half a time, a half a year. So we got three and a half years, again, 1,260. The serpent noticed his attack as he knows his time is short. He poured water like a river out of his mouth. In the book of Revelation, in apocalyptic literature, when something is proceeding from the mouth, it, it, it's a picture of speech. It's a picture of words. When we see in Revelation 19 that Jesus comes back with a sword a, a, a double-edged sword out of his mouth. It's, it's, it's a sword of judgment. He's coming back to conquer. He's coming back to destroy his enemies. We have here the picture of the serpent pursuing the woman. And again, these, these pictures are dramatic. They're meant to be dramatic. They're meant to convey a, a, a deep spiritual reality, a truth here. And what is it? Well, out of his mouth just comes forth rivers of lies. And rivers of deception. And rivers of false teaching. And we see all of that earlier on in the book of Revelation in the letters to the seven churches. What threatened the church then and what threatens the church now? What threatens the church in the book of Revelation? False teaching. Persecution. Compromise with the idolatrous and moral world around us. And spiritual complacency. And to bring people to all of this, Satan uses words. He's the deceiver of the whole world. He's cunning, he's crafty, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made in the beginning. And here he is using the power of his lies to bring the church down, to to carry the church away. And yet God has made good on his promise when he says, when you walk through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. I will be with you in the fire, in the river. Satan launches his attack against the church, against Church by false teaching. And we see so much, so many people today just carried away with every wind of doctrine, every wave of new teaching, every wave of new revelation, every wave of heresy. And yet the church has her one foundation, her one point, one glorious anchor. It's right here. The floods around us, the rivers come rushing against us, and we have this anchor holding us fast as the Lord Jesus holds us fast in heaven. He's after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but notice again God's protection, verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It belongs to him. He's the God of providence and sovereignty. He was able to, in his sovereign providence work all things for the good of his people, including their deliverance from Satan's attacks. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. God protects his people from all the lies and deception and false teaching and heresy of the devil. Verse 17, then the dragon, here's the last verse, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's still launching his war on all who have come after her, all her descendants. She's still really the collective woman, the the people of God here. And he defines who they are. They're those who keep the commandments of God because they love Christ. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. People of God in this chapter are described as those who keep commandments of God. They do what God says to do. They sin. Yes, they are not perfect. No, but they do what God says. When they sin, they fly to the throne. They go back to that place where the devil has been thrown out. And they cry out for mercy at the throne of grace. And God hears them and renews them, washes them, purges them, cleanses them, and then sends them out again to do great things for his glory. They are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. It means they hold fast to who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. And the devil's not done. It's, the chapter ends with these kind of chilling words, and he stood on the sand of the sea. You know why? Because in chapter 13, he's going to summon the help of two more beasts. He's, the, the, this, 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 this other beast this false prophet is going to rise and, and Satan's going to give his power to them and they're going to still launch their assaults against the church up until the very end of the age, Revelation 14, when the Son of Man comes on that cloud and he, he summons the great harvest. It's time for judgment. What do we make of all this? Friends, I just want to say that this Christmas story from the apocalypse is meant to encourage us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We rest in the wake of his victory, his triumph. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Oh, Luther was so right when the devil would come and whisper, accusations against him and Luther would say things like oh devil you are so correct you are so correct you are so correct and worse and worse and more and more you're barely touching the tip of the iceberg but you're leaving out one thing Jesus died for me he's ascended to the throne for me he's seated at the right hand of God as my high priest and advocate for me And so you can launch every accusation against me, but I'm just going to point you up here. When the devil tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's what Revelation 12 is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. Church, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. You need to hold fast to him. You need to find your hope in the blood of the lamb, the blood that brought you near, the blood that silences your accuser, the blood that satisfies God's wrath on your behalf, the blood that takes away all your sin. That's how you conquer the enemy, the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of your testimony, keep preaching the gospel. Every time you preach the gospel, you step on the serpent's head. Every time you declare what Christ has done, You tread on the serpent's head. Every time you share the gospel with someone new, Satan takes another blow from the feet of the church in whom the Son of God lives and moves. Do not love your life even unto death. Give your life away for Christ. Give your life away as a father, as a mother. Give your life away for Christ. That's how victory is won. Jesus says, he who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Do not love your life to the end. Give it away for Christ. If you're an unbeliever in here, as I meditated upon this text and thought, man, where are the unbelievers in all of this? Where's the lost man, the lost woman in all of this? And the one thing I could think of is the river of lies and deception that's ever pouring forth from the ancient serpent. If you're an unbeliever, that's the river that you live in. That's the river that you swim in. That's the river that is just taking you. You're going with the flow. You're going with the flow. You're believing subtle lies like life is about you. Just take it easy. Don't get serious about all this religion stuff. You don't need to join the church. You can be a Christian and not join the church. You can be a Christian and just kind of do your little Lone Ranger thing over here. And yet that's exactly what the serpent wants. He wants you isolated. He wants you isolated. Because that's how predators work. Harder to attack the pack. Easy to attack the one. Friends, if you're lost in this room and you know it, cry out to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and he will take your sins away, wash you clean and make you so that you can stand accepted before the throne of God above and place you at a point where Paul can throw down the gauntlet in Romans chapter 8 and say, and look at the church and say, who is to condemn? Who? Who? Who can legitimately bring a charge against God's elect? who? Paul throws out the challenge because he knows the answer is what? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, who has ascended to the right hand of God, who indeed is now interceding for us. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? God justifies. And that's what this is about. Let us rest in the glory of this apocalyptic Christmas story. And let us go forth telling people the real meaning of Christmas. That one has come to live for us, die for us, rise for us, ascend for us, sit at the right hand of God for us, and one day come back for us all to slay the serpent and rescue his bride. Father, thank you so much for your word today. Though we are few in this room, oh, What you've given us is much. Much to contemplate. Much to rejoice in. Much to celebrate. Much to bask in. I pray that as we are in this wilderness. In this dark time. Even as Elijah was in the wilderness for that dark time of three and a half years. Wicked rulers in the land. Wicked laws in the land. Nevertheless. We, like Elijah, can pray and be heard by our God. We, like Elijah, can prophesy and preach the truth and even come out challenging the prophets of Baal because we have a God who answers by fire. Oh, Father, we pray this morning that we would be nourished and fed and taken care of as we put ourselves in the path of your blessing. If your goal and aim in this dark wilderness age is to nourish us, help us to take that seriously. Help us, like Paul, to say, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We praise you and we thank you in the name of our glorious head, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.